the fruits of non-clinging, we've experienced the fruits of all Buddhist teachings. Pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? <laughs> so, said a little differently, and this is, you'll be familiar if you've heard the Four Noble Truths, that we suffer, all beings suffer, and our suffering, the cause of our suffering, is through this tendency to grasp, to hold on to life, to cling to what is. And I remember in high school, I, first, I took my first course in Buddhism in 10th grade, and I heard the truths of, okay, so suffering exists and it's universal, and it happens through clinging, and I decided I didn't want to have anything to do with Buddhism. <laughs> it seemed so grim, and the basic thing it was writing off was the stuff that translated to me as what where the fun was, you know? Um, and it wasn't until, you know, a good number of years later, in the middle of college or towards the end of college, that I re-heard the Dharma. And at that point, I had a quite different response, which many of you might relate to, which was kind of one of relief. Like, yeah, all of us do suffer. It's true, so it doesn't make me weird or pathological or different. And yeah, every time I get addicted or attached to something, it hurts, you know? There was a student in IMS that uh, gave a pretty interesting description of suffering. As Joseph Goldstein reported this the other day, he said, suffering is like rope burn. You know, life is this moving rope, and every time we try to hold on, we get... Isn't that a good one? Suffering is like rope burn. It's our basic stress in life. When we talk about stress, it's not the actual pain that comes our way, but it's the enormous amount of anxiety and busyness that we generate in trying to control it, make bad things not happen and make good things happen. That's stress. Lao Tzu writes, be content with what you have. Rejoice in the way things are. When you realize there is nothing lacking, the whole world belongs to you. It's so beautiful, and there's something in us that goes, yeah. And yet, when we reflect on our enormously deep and powerful conditioning to have a complaint about how it is, you know, it's something that wouldn't it be wonderful if we could put it all down? And I find it useful many days that I do this just to reflect on today, and I invite you to. How much contentment was there? How much of that quality of just resting in how this moment is. You know the phrase, thank you for everything, I have no complaints whatsoever. How much of that? Or, how much was there a sense of getting this done so that can get done so that can get done, kind of leaning into the future with a subtle sense of anxiety or longing, grasping after certain pleasures, avoiding pains. Meditation is not just a practice when we're sitting, but it's really a way of moving through life more and more in that mode of letting be, of resting in each moment 
allowing it to be as it is, learning to love life as it is. And that doesn't mean like it. It doesn't mean feel everything's pleasant. But in some deep way, it's to cultivate a willingness to be here. Because really, what are our options? Either we can reject it or say, okay. That, you know, in between there might be some fiddling around, but not on the big stuff. Isn't that so? The big stuff, aging, sickness, death. So what are our options to either train and cultivate these qualities of letting be, of opening to how it is, are to keep on feeding our habits of trying to control. It's said that our conditioning is quite simply to be at war with how it is, to try to grasp and resist and control. And because of that, meditation, which means being with what is, is really being with that, being with all those tendencies. That's the starting point of practice, that we begin to pay wise attention to all the ways that we're kind of holding on to things or pushing things away. And it's not a negative revealing. It's not like, oh my God, I didn't know I was so... I mean, this is just part of our humanity that we hold on and push away. So it's really developing a quite open-hearted way of paying attention to grasping. So what I'd like to do tonight in that spirit is to look at the main ways that we cling on to life, to note them, and to also talk some about how our practice can loosen, can free that up through clear seeing and through compassion. The first way that we um, can, in a very broad sense, begin to recognize clinging is our clinging to sense pleasures. And this is something we go in some way, yeah, of course I cling to sense pleasures, but sometimes don't realize how incredibly pervasive it is, how much we organize our day around trying to have more pleasant experiences and less unpleasant experiences. We really want to be comfortable. It's a big deal. If you watch yourself through the day, there's a lot of physical movement just to get physically more comfortable. And there's a lot of mental movement, usually trying to go in, going into thoughts again and again to try to make our world more comfortable for us, more easy to deal with. When we look at how much we move around, we realize how much attachment there is. We cling to tastes, pleasant tastes, pleasant smells, pleasant visuals. We really want things to look and feel and taste and be nice, to touch to the way the weather is, to getting high in the different ways we try to get high and to getting soothed in the different ways we try to get soothed. So there's this deep-rooted habit to organize around feeling good. And for all of us, it latches onto certain things. We each have our own particular uh, lineup of, of what we get attached to, to feel good. And in the extreme, it's addictions. And this culture is becoming more and more aware of how much suffering comes when it's not just kind of a, hey, I really like this, but I have to have this to be okay. I can't have that or I won't be okay. 
a man talking to his friend said, my psychiatrist says I'm in love with my umbrella and that that's the source of my troubles. In love with your umbrella? Yes, isn't that ridiculous? Oh, I like and respect my umbrella and enjoy its company, but love? (laughs) (laughs) But we all have something like that, something where if we're really honest, there's a lot of hooks. We all want happiness and we attach it to some passing pleasure that there's no way we can own or possess or control, but we hook on anyway. In a story I heard about the Dalai Lama, he was attending a conference on the West Coast and each day getting to the conference he had to go down this street with all these high-tech stores and he, like many people, has a real affinity for high-tech gizmos and he said that by the end of the week he found himself wanting things he even didn't know what they were. (laughs) (laughs) So attachment to sense pleasures. Then there's our attachment to our ideas and our views about things. Is there anyone here that doesn't care about being right? (laughs) <laughs> we all do, don't we? Doesn't it feel great when somebody goes, you're right? <laughs> Just that, that's like an incredible, like, poof, what a gift, you know? So we go around and we kind of gather evidence to support our views, and we get pretty antagonized when there's a view that we're invested in that someone doesn't agree with. It really threatens our sense of okayness. We hold on to these realities. We want them to be congruent and coherent and to... You know, they represent us. I remember, uh, many of you know, I lived in an ashram for a number of years, and the head teacher, the yogi in charge, was controversial. Within our community, within the ashram, we all thought he was terrific. But we were young, and many of our parents perceived him as this kind of manipulative, Uh, charlatan. And I remember with my parents, you know, it was really important for me to feel like I was in a respectable gig and they very much thought that this thing was real shady. And I was, and so I just spent a lot of years, you know, staunchly trying to proclaim his okayness and therefore my okayness and that was my view. And then I left the ashram. You know, and, and as some of you might know, when you're in these spiritual communities, you're either on the boat or off the boat. If you leave, all of a sudden you've betrayed the faith. And Well, then it became very important for me to prove he, how unokay he was, what a shadowy guy he was, what a manipulative whatever. And so then I started building all my evidence on that side. And it wasn't until I did some psychodrama and some other inner work that I realized that that too my heart was tight, my mind was small, and holding on to he, it wasn't he's good, it wasn't he's bad. And so gradually over time, and I was less invested, there was less drama around it, it became he's this human with his power trips and his this and that, and maybe for some people it's helpful, certainly for me he's not. And what I started learning about views, these views we hold on to, one thing I learned is who knows? You know, I don't really know the inside scoop. We just have stories we're basing these realities on. 
And any conviction that's held tightly makes my mind small. And the other thing is, these views are not metaphysical truths. They're skillful means. You know how the Zen masters say, take the world of concepts in two hands and drop it? No. They're skillful means at best, these views of ours, yet we hold on really tight. The third area, okay, there's sense pleasures, there's holding on to our views. The third area of clinging that quite interesting is our clinging to rites and rituals and forms. Sometimes they're in the spiritual way and sometimes personal growth forms or whatever. It's that it's like the finger pointing to the moon is not the moon and yet we get very attached to the right path or the right way or the right religion or the right program, I'm doing my program, you know, and lose our connection with the moment-to-moment aliveness of what's happening. So the Buddha talked about the, the delusion and ignorance when we get attached to the forms themselves. Again, forms can be skillful means, can be beautiful ways of inclining our mind towards truth, but it's not the thing itself. The fourth and the most profound way that we get caught in ignorance and delusion and suffering, the Buddha pointed out, was our attachment to a sense of self. Now this is the most difficult and yet most important area to talk about because it's so deep, so unconscious, so hard to see. And even when we see it, it's usually cognitive, not cellular. Meditation reveals, when we look closely, when we, in a moment-to-moment way, pay attention to our experience, that there's no abiding separate self or entity. There's no one it's happening to. There's no one that's making it happen. Experience is just happening. It's kind of like with the Wizard of Oz, that there's nobody behind the curtain. When we pull the curtain, when we turn the mind back and just look at our own mind and experience, it's just sensations and emotions and sounds and a thought bubbling up and then more emotion. It's phenomenon appearing, changing, dissolving. It's said that it just not only changes all the time in terms of our thoughts and our feelings and so on on a cellular level. Everything recycles, what, every seven years? Everything's changing. So what permanent abiding entity is there? When we look closely, and it's really interesting to ask yourself when you're having a strong experience, who's this happening to? And really pay attention and try to find somebody in there. Try it. What it does is, in a very radical way, can free the mind. Who's this happening to? Who's, Who's making this happen? If you start feeling guilty, ashamed, who made that happen? Who did that? There's nobody in there. One way of sensing the self is it's just at most an idea. You can't have a sense of self without having some concept that gathers all the pieces together and says, oh, I am that. Joseph Goldstein uh, uses the metaphor of self as a rainbow. 
says, you know how you look at a rainbow? And we go, oh, what a beautiful thing. It's like it looks like this thing. But if you look close, what is it? But a play of the elements, a play of moisture and light that's very temporary. And we might seem to take form, this play of elements that we call self might take form and, and be apparent for a longer stretch, but it's the exact same thing. It's what we experience is due to the coming together of many different interdependent conditions. We are like a rainbow. Sometimes we understand this. When we start paying attention, we go, yeah, that, yeah, there's nobody really home in there, but there's still a feeling like somebody's there. Do you know what I mean? I mean, this is for pretty much everybody. We might understand the non-dual, that what the Buddhists call emptiness, that it's all appearing, it's all happening, but there's no solid entity. We might cognitively recognize that, but we go around with this feeling like, here I am, you know? Most of us do. And so it's really becomes part of the practice to start recognizing how this feeling is generated. Let's say something happens and we have a pain in our lower back and we go, oh, my back hurts. Just that thought, what does that create? It creates a my, a self that's having something happen. It creates a back. If we're really paying attention, it's just sensations coming and going in a great space of awareness. And yet, the experience, what we do is slap onto it a something. And it's a conceptual something that says there's a self that's happening to, or a self that isn't dealing with their health right and shouldn't have it happen. Or We add on the ideas that create a sense of self. Thoughts continually recreate a sense of self. And most of us have had a glimmer of how that's so, because it's grace, but we have stretches where we don't get so caught in those thoughts. We each know it. There are times when we're in nature, and gradually the thoughts quiet down, and there's just the colors and the smells and the feeling of the breeze. And there comes, the less thoughts there are, just a sense of we're part of it all. It's one of the reasons we find so much sustenance and truth in being in nature, that we let go of that sense of separation that comes from the conceptual mind. And it happens in being with others that we love, in making love, in listening to music. There are times that we just don't have as many thoughts, and there's not this sense of this solid entity there so much, but just a flow of experience, and we cherish those moments. If on reflection we even ask ourselves what are the moments or times that we really felt most alive, most wakeful, we don't go back to times when we were involved in a great analytic process of interpreting or thinking or planning, but usually when it fell away, sometimes at retreat, sometimes in nature, as I've said. And there's just this full-bodied, full-mind, here I am, aware, awake, it's happening, without really an eye that it's happening to. It's just experience, pure experience. That is our Buddha nature, this pure awareness that simply experiences 
It's not happening to someone, it's just happening. For most of us, because we keep recollecting around a sense of self, we have what they call the shadow of the self, our fear. It's the constant companion of thinking that you're a separate self. If you keep on reconstructing the sense of separate self, along with that is a feeling of being incomplete, inadequate, threatened by the other, the world, a need to complete and enhance yourself, all the whole world of grasping, delusion, aversion, swirls around that concept. We spend our lives trying to feel bigger, more solid, more full, and avoid death, avoid annihilation. Some of you might know of the Zen death poems. You know, it's, it's the path of Zen and Vipassana to wake up out of this sense of separation, out of this sense of, of being a separate self. And these death poems, in a way, are an expression of the freedom that can be experienced. And here's one I like. This is about a, a Zen monk on his deathbed, and his students say, you haven't ridden your death poem, Master. And he says, oh, and he sits up and grasps his brush and madly begins his calligraphy of the verse. Then he lies down and dies. And here's what the poem said. Birth is thus, death is thus, verse or no verse, what's the fuss? <laughs> so in a way, the path is to have this sense of freedom where we can let go of whatever we're holding on to, whether it's this need to have this happen this way and that not happen, or even the need not to die, to really have that quality of letting go. And when we go on retreat, the purpose of having a silent retreat is in a way when we don't talk so much, we begin to have the thoughts quiet down, and when that happens, we begin to experience that awareness that isn't holding on so much, that's not so self-oriented, always referring back to a self. There's more freedom in the mind. And that can be scary, because as soon as we become more free, as soon as there's a sense of that our identity is bigger than that familiar small self, we get anxious. And the ego wildly tries to recreate itself. It's pretty interesting what happens. I was at a retreat a couple of weeks ago with a Tibetan teacher, uh, Sokni Rinpoche, and he described when he teaches uh, his, a retreat in Mexico that he taught, and he said they were on silence and things were getting quieter and more spacious, and he said around the seventh day he noticed that the students were going out and having conversation with, with trees and with cats <laughs> <laughs> to try to come back into some sense of who am I and where am I will do anything. So the retreats and the practice, whether it's a short sitting or through the day, can begin to loosen up this sense of the old familiar small self and can bring up anxiety and a kind of scrambling to recreate a reference point. It's very hard to sense how fully and how much time we spend organizing around this sense of self. Wei Wu Wai wrote, why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% .9 of everything you do is for yourself, and there isn't one. 
<laughs> so the most immediate and big flag that we're identified with smallness is suffering. Ajahn Chah, who has passed away several years ago, he used to go around in his retreats and when he'd see someone really struggling, really suffering, he'd go and he'd say it kindly, he'd say, oh, you must be very attached, you know? That when we're having trouble, we've glommed onto something, we're resisting something. So our path is really to turn the mind, to look at the mind, to see the glue, to see what am I holding? It's a wonderful question if you find yourself really struggling. What am I believing right now? I find for myself that when I'm, you know, kind of sunk into some morass, in some way grim or whatever, I'm believing some thought about how I am either have blown it or I'm about to blow it <laughs> in some general way. It's not always specific, but there's something about inadequacy which refers back to a self that's not together, you know. There are a number of different ways that we suffer out of this attachment, this holding on to pleasure or to a sense of self or to a belief or to a view. The most obvious, and this you can probably sense in a very physical way, is that grasping, whether it's a small grasping of the tension of I want it to be this way or an addictive grasping, is exhausting. It's like, imagine a clenched fist that never releases its grip. That's painful. Chogyam Trungpa says that when we're grasping around existence, we're like this bundle of tense muscles always trying to protect ourselves. That's suffering. That kind of chronic tension of trying to control our lives. So that's one level of it, that we um, feel just this exhaustion or, or pain when we're trying to protect what we have or enhance what we have. I read that Abbott and Costello once took out a $100,000 insurance policy with Lloyds of London that stipulated payment if any of their audience should die of laughter. <laughs> They will go to any extent to protect, to enhance. So that's rope burn. That's the chronic holding on, the dissatisfaction, because it never works out. Holding on never gets us what we want. Then there's another level of suffering that comes when we're holding on real tight to things, which is we don't end up seeing what's true. When we have an agenda, I want it this way, I don't want it that way, we don't get to see things as they actually are. And science, this is the observer effect, which most of you know, that as soon as you're observing something, if there's the slightest wanting, fearing, assumption, presupposition, it's going to affect what's being observed. There's no direct, clear recognition. And it's true in an intimate relationship. If you want something from somebody or fear something from somebody, then you can't see what's happening, who they are. I mean, how many of you have experienced getting infatuated and being really blind and deluded? Or being really afraid of someone and having that same type of delusion? 
when there's a strong agenda, we can't see clearly. The biggest thing we can't see when we're holding on tight, when we're believing we're separate, is our natural connectedness, that we're a part of things. As long as we're stirring up this whole swirl of, I need this, can't have that, they're going to attack, I need to do... We cannot see in a natural way how we belong to this world. We miss out on that truth. Which leads to the third, which is when we're grasping, when we're clinging, when we have a strong agenda, we miss out on the moment. Our life passes by. And that's the one that, in a sense, brings up the most grief as people start entering the path of practice more, is that kind of growing recognition of all the moments we spend distracted, caught up in our thoughts, caught up on our agendas, are moments that we could have really connected with just what's happening, with the color of the trees and the being that we're with at that moment, and the life in our body, and just what's going on. A silly example. I have brought a frog, said Professor Crumplemayer, beaming at his class in elementary zoology, fresh from the pond in order that we might study its outer appearance and later dissect it. He carefully unwrapped the package he carried, and inside was a neatly prepared ham sandwich. The good professor looked at it with astonishment. Odd, he said, I distinctly remember having eaten my lunch. <laughs> we miss out. Isn't it true? I mean, when you reflect on the day, on the weekend, on different times being with people that you cared about, how many times do we fully just sit down and be here for it? And how many times are we kind of part here and part planning what's next, or worrying about what's next? The Tibetans have a teaching that kind of describes this tendency we have to not really abide or be here. And uh, this teaching is about what's called a Tibetan marmot. It's like the American marmot, this little creature that likes mice and they wait in, outside of a mouse hole. And whenever a mouse comes out, the marmot will grab the mouse and put it under its bum and sit on it, you know? And then another mouse will come out, and it'll kind of lean forward a little, grab it, put it under its body. And it'll keep doing that, but then finally no more mice will be coming out. And so it'll lean way, way forward, and then they all run away. <laughs> so the teaching is, you know, eat it while you've got it. You know? Taste fully what's right happening now. Don't wait. Don't collect stuff. It's like going through your life working really hard to make enough money so you can retire and then you can enjoy. It's happening now. This is it. We don't have something else. Because if it's our habit right now to be waiting, planning, worrying, preparing, that habit's really strong. We'll keep on right through the rest of our lives sitting on things, but not tasting them. We'll be collecting, but not really living.
The great way is not difficult for one who has no preferences. This is the most classic kind of pronouncement in the sutras. The great way is not difficult for one who has no preferences. When we're not caught in grasping, when we're not holding on tight to our yeses, to our noes, there's a quality of freedom, the capacity to then just be mindful and live fully just what's happening here and now. And this is the, the quality of heart and mind that we're cultivating in practice. The given is we have preferences, but it's our capacity to begin to bring a quality of mindfulness to that that starts to loosen and free our minds. This awareness has been described by Jack Cornfield as taking the one seat. To take the one seat, to reclaim our Buddha nature, is to sit in the midst of experience just as it is and to have our eyes open and our heart open. In any moment we do this, it opens a whole new possibility, the possibility that we bear witness to that we experience the unspeakable sorrow and beauty that makes up life, to take the one seat. When we take the one seat, and we can do it this moment, there's a quality of being fully with what's there. It's not a, a clinical dissociated observation. It's an entering the flow. It's a being with but not holding on. It's a being with but not pushing away. The idea of non-clinging does not mean to not enjoy. It's actually the opposite. A true capacity to, to enjoy means the capacity to be with fully and let go when it moves on. To cherish a certain experience with a loved one in nature, wherever, and yet not have to possess, have to keep recreating the exact same experience. I have this um, phenomenon where, I, as some of you know, I travel a lot and I, I have the uh, pleasure of being in many beautiful places and I'll sometimes go and teach in a lovely place in Northern California or wherever in the woods of New England and I'll be out walking and it'll be just glorious and then I get seized by this thing and it's been happening to me for most of my adult life that I'm supposed to live in the wilderness, you know, I'm just not supposed to be in the burbs. <laughs> and so as soon as I'm enjoying the wilderness I'm in, I'll just go off into this whole thing of I've got to change my life, I'm much more at home here, and you know, it just, it just triggers off this thing, and then I'm not enjoying being there anymore. I'm just being dissatisfied with my life. So gradually in recent times I've recognized that triggering and come back again, but we all have it. Whenever there's a deep kind of pleasure a deep enjoyment, it's so quick that we start scheming on how to make it more. Similarly, we push away, if something's unpleasant, we immediately start blocking off. Now on the pleasure side, William Blake, I think, says it the best. He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. 
Many of you know it. So what about when it's difficult? How to, the opposite of clinging, is how to not push away. How to experience what arises and not block it off, not resist so much. And really the teachings are exactly the same, to take the one seat. To have, whether it's pain or pleasure, to have it arise and have a willingness to experience what's there. It goes against all our conditioning and it's a path to freedom. To not have that reflex to push away, to ignore, to go off into thoughts, to fight, to lash out, to go dead, but rather to keep being here. Just that. It's so simple and so difficult and so freeing that it's right there for us to stay put with wakeful attention and to open to what's there. And yet the question comes up, and it's a real fair one, which is, if it's really awful and painful, why be there for it? You know? Why stay for it? And sometimes, and I've said this many times here, it's not wise. Sometimes if, it's, if the experience of pain is too overwhelming, we need to step back to rebuild our resourcefulness, to get help, and that is wisdom itself. But in the long run, there's a really profound reason why to learn to stay put in the midst of what's difficult. And that is that our suffering comes because we're identified as a small self that's a victim. When things are painful, we are a victim. Either it's happening to us or we've caused it, but either way, our reactivity perpetuates this sense of being small and inadequate and threatened and scared. It's not until we learn to stay put and open to that awareness that can include that we start trusting our nature, trusting that we can handle what arises, that we have the heart, the compassion, the presence to be with life. As long as we run away, we'll always think of ourselves as a separate self that can't handle it and needs to run away. So it takes a lot of courage to stay, but it ends up giving us the quality of confidence that really translates into freedom. We're not any longer living in that shadow, that fear that we can't be with our lives. I think the Buddha, in describing the power of mindfulness, in the most simple way said that when we live in our conditioning, we stay identified as a small and separate self. As long as we block what's unpleasant, grasp what's pleasant, we're still caught in the sense of being small and separate. As we begin to stay put, to open, to be with what's there, we discover our Buddha nature, which is a natural wakefulness, a natural presence. The Zen masters describe it like this, that if you want to control a cow, give it a huge, huge field. And so our practice is to develop a mind that's very, very big, that has room for things, that has room for whatever. So nothing's excluded and we're not caught in the specific waves of what's happening. We are the ocean that it's all happening in. We've touched this. There are moments for each of us during our day and during our life 
where we do relax into a more open space, where we don't feel lost in thoughts and reactivity. And it's a very useful and practical practice to begin to recognize that more as you go through the week, to notice the times that you're not caught, that you're not clinging, that you're not grasping after something or avoiding something. Because as we get familiar with that quality of a more open, present awareness, our identity becomes more attuned to that. It's more, ah, this is who I am. It's our habit of thinking of ourselves as small, and it can be a new and very liberating way to perceive things, to experience ourselves as awareness, as a compassionate heart that can be with what's there, not as a somebody, but as awareness. Cilicius writes, God, whose love and joy are present everywhere, can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. There's a way in which as we let go of the things we're holding on to, as we let go of a preoccupation with self, we begin to feel naturally connected with all beings. There's a natural compassion and connectedness that arises. It happens as we see through our clinging and let go, and we can cultivate these qualities of the heart of compassion and loving kindness, and that actually helps us to then let go of clinging, so it goes both ways. However is our entree point in any given moment, right now, that we take the one seat, that we begin to see what's happening, we open to a larger sense of presence. Just try for a second, and I'm just going to talk for a few minutes more, and then we'll meditate. But just for now, you might adjust how you're sitting, and, and check inside. And just to invite you to resurrect for yourself any bout of reactivity or clinging that might recently have occurred, whether it was today or yesterday or last weekend. Any drama can be kind of a small one where you got a little caught in wanting things to be a certain way, in reacting to somebody, where you really felt a small self in reaction, angry, wanting, caught. And think of the situation, think of the circumstances of what went through your mind, For some, you might be able to sense the emotions involved. For others, just a sense of the scenario. But as best as possible to access that drama. And then taking a few breaths, begin to listen and sense the space around you and connect with being in a room with, oh, 60-some people, all who are connecting with 
inner dramas of clinging or aversion and just sense the awareness that knows that. Look at your own mind and see the thoughts, the feelings, the images, and so on that comprise that drama. But allow yourself to sense a relaxed space of awareness that knows. Relax the body some so that you can open and become more that ocean of awareness that sees the waves of that drama, includes them, but is not limited by them. It's called seeing emptiness when we can recognize these changing appearances of emotions and thoughts and not add on to them a sense of a solid self, but just changing appearances. Rest in the awareness that knows. Let your heart relate in a kind way to whatever sufferings there. Sense your capacity to rest, to take the one seat, to be the one who sees and touches and feels in a very expansive way. And to let your heart be kind towards whatever's going on. If in this exercise it's difficult, then be kind towards that. If you're tired, be kind towards that. So that as you sit right now, you can relax the meditation into one of simply recognizing what's true right now with a kind heart. To not be caught in thoughts, but to see them. To turn the mind again and again to awareness itself, to what's happening with an open heart. And gently bring yourself back. Just to close, to say that as we cultivate this quality of mindfulness, there is a natural opening of the heart and mind that moves through our day where we get less and less stuck. We see more and more quickly where we're clinging. And there becomes more of a sense of freedom and more of a sense of including and caring for all the other beings in our life because we're not so preoccupied. This is a very brief story about the Zen poet Ryokan. Ryokan lived in a small hut at the foot of a mountain. One evening a thief broke in, only to find that there was nothing in the hut worth stealing. When Ryokan returned, he found the thief and said, you've probably come a long way and you shouldn't return empty-handed. Please take my clothes as a gift. Shamefaced, the thief took the clothes and left. Ryokan sat down naked and looked up at the sky. Poor fellow, he said, I wish I could have given him this beautiful moon. So the path of non-clinging is the path of discovering our natural heart, our awakened heart, our awakened mind. We'll just close taking a few moments in silence 
again, just to rest in that awareness that sees what's true, that touches with compassion and care, whatever arises, to let that be your intention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.